0: Father's Table: An introspective look and in conversation about our
1: fathers and how they shaped our lives. Welcome back to the Father's Table. I'm your host Keith Ellaby, and today I have Aaron Walker joining me at the table. Uh, Aaron is, I believe, the founder of Rise 5 Outreach Group, uh, whose mission really struck me when I looked it up on the website. Uh, It says, is to unite Black men, preserve masculinity, create safe space places and resources for men to thrive and to bridge the gap of fatherlessness. That is an awesome, awesome mission statement. May I add and uh, Aaron, thanks for joining the show. Sure, man. for sure. excited to be here.: Yeah, thank you so much. I want to ask you this, in the part of your mission statement, the preserve masculinity part, how did you come up with that when you were writing your mission statement?
0: Well you know, as we were um thinking about, as we were thinking about some of the issues that are affecting our a black man in America, uh, we could not, we could not not ignore the fact that um, identity and masculinity were tied in, in between each other. And so we didn't want to kind of skip over and graze over everything else and and not act like the masculinity is under attack. And um, so that was one of the things that I wanted to be clear about um, when we started to build the, build the foundation of it, how important masculinity
1: is. Oh, absolutely! Just this morning, I was reading a news article because I'm out here in LA, and um, there's this story out here. I don't know how true it is. I believe it was like a fourteen-year-old was forced to take estrogen, uh, but to treat a, a like a disorder. It's called um, oppositional defiance disorder. And the doctors like injected him with estrogen. And I'm like, what is that? And I didn't really understand that, but I guess the result of that the young man grew breasts and, and his parents didn't even sign off on it. It was like at a detention center or facility.
0: The common thing that I said is the system um the system that that gives these, because I, I like i told you i'm i'm um, a chaplain at a youth detention center and one of the most strangest things that i used to see and I, and I couldn't really get used to is this part in the day where they would like give them their medication and so we'll be in one of the sessions with the guys and i mean um these guys will literally be out for the count they'll 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 go from being up here excited and engagement engaging and then about the next 10 minutes in the meeting while everybody's still talking and alive, um, they'll start nodding off. And, and I had to ask one of um, one of the young men that I said, what, what is it that these, you know, when they give you all the medication, what, what does it do? And he was like, man, it, one of the side effects is it makes you get really sleepy. The other one makes you really emotional and, and so forth and so on. And so, you know, all these side effects that whatever they give these kids to contain their behavior or to modify uh, behavior. Um it is a whole nother topic in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I'm not surprised about the the whole, you know, like these drugs that are using to inform our our kids. That
1: could be a whole nother show. i um, you <laughs> you're not gonna touch that right now. Right. Um but okay so at the opening of every show I would like to I'd like to ask our guests to, to close their eyes, take three deep breaths, and when you're done, tell me the first thing that comes to mind when you think about your father.
0: Yeah. I'm on a podcast. Okay. Okay. Um, the third breath outside of that question, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it it made me think about um, the beach. Uh, ironic enough, I don't know <laughs> I thought about a beach uh, and I thought about waves just smacking my face and you know, toes in the sand. It was
1: weird. Oh <laughs> yeah did you Did your father take you to the the beach at all? Um,
0: no, not at all, actually, because I stayed in Chicago, Lake Michigan, and that was one of the places we dreamed about, and then finally we got old enough. We used to go up there and cause havoc and throw sand at each other, um, you know, okay. city boys going to the beach, and so it was a fun thing to do when we were young, um, but but one of the things I do think about when I think about my father is when he used to um, come pick me up, and we used to go to this convenience store and get jelly beans, and I used to pick through the jelly beans all the purples out. And he used to always say, like, you know, what you picking through, that's the best jelly bean ever. And I am like, this is nasty as what? <laughs> and he'll take all of your ego. So I remember that clear as day.
1: Awesome, awesome, man. Uh just uh, let's just rewind the clocks a little bit. Um tell me about your father um as as far as your early childhood is concerned. Uh, how how was his how was your interactions and relationship with him when you were like a toddler, a little one running around, if you can remember anything.
0: Uh well, you know, those ages I really didn't remember him much until I got around around maybe two or three. Um, and then sporadically throughout my later years, maybe like when I started becoming eight and ten and then it just became more faint and faint. Um, but the times when he was around uh, all I remember for the most part is him just kind of being very quiet. He's a really quiet, reserved guy for the most part. Uh, his nickname was Slim. I didn't know why they called him Slim, but they <laughs> called him Slim. But he was smooth, man. He was a smooth guy. And, um, and for the most part, he had, he was a man of little words, but a lot of action. Um, and depending on what it was, it was no action. So, um, that's, so that's kind of what I thought about. So it
1: sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like You didn't have, you didn't grow up with your father in the house. Yeah, no, not at all. So, what was the dynamic or the origin of your father's relationship with your mother? Um, They met.
0: um, Dad had just got divorced not too long. They had ended up meeting. And after meeting, um, Dad was in the Vietnam War. So, he was back and forth um, in the war. Coming back home and war, coming back home. And so even their relationship was a little spotty from time to time. Um, and so as far as household setting, I, like I, um, I told you um, previously, I didn't grow up in the house with them, uh, particularly per se. And so I usually glean from my brothers who were there a little bit longer in the house with them that can kind of generate the kind of relationship that they fostered. Uh, what, what they usually said is that the most time, the only time that they really got along, or the only time they were really kind of on one accord. When it was about either money um, or some type of drugs, because at the time they were strung out on drugs, and so they shared that same commonality. Um, so that was the only time that was kind of like this—the this sense of peace. My brother would say. Uh, but anytime either one of those were missing, which is common in most um, situations and circumstances, money or if the drugs is missing, then there's a disturbance overall um, in the the relationship of the parents, and so that was kind of rocky. That was kind of like unaffectionate, unemotional, unattached to anything. Even with my mom, my mom was, uh, you know, a little bit more attached, and a little bit more passionate. And my dad just wasn't that type of guy,
1: unless it was about money and drugs. Gotcha, gotcha. Got you, got you. <laughs> so you said you didn't grow up in the house with either one of your parents. You correct, so you, with your grandparents.
0: No, no, no. Actually, I um, so I grew up in in, in foster care. So um, because of the the dynamic of their the relationship, relationship, yeah, you know, it it made them, in some sense, and at that time they were kind of unfit. And uh, my dad was had left for a long period of time, and my mom she was in and out of the house, and we were staying in our grandmother's house at that time when all of this transpired. And then um, DCFS was called, which is the agency in Chicago um DCFL was uh, was called and you know all my brothers and sisters who were in the house at that time all got put into um, the system and split up. they they tried their best to keep us all together. A couple of us uh two of my brothers moved together. Uh, they were able to put me and my sister together for a period of time, um, but because of like for me, because of anger issues, because of like confusion about what was going on, what was happening, um, you know I became angry, I became you know that type of kid. And staying with my sister for a little while, I ended up getting kicked out of that foster home with her, uh, which made me even more angry because I'm like, that's the only sense of family I have. And so so growing up and growing up in different foster homes and being at the mercy in hands of strangers uh, was just a lifestyle that I had learned how to kind of uh, cope with to survive. Um, and then not having my father um, on top of that made things worse, because and here's what I also noticed. And a lot of the homes that they were placing me in, there was no father in those homes.
1: Really? There was no father in those homes. There was no father. Wow, that is amazing. That's, a, that's, that's really uh, interesting uh, dynamic to that. And so you grew up in this <coughs> excuse me, you grew up in a system where your parents were struggling. They take your siblings, they move them into the foster care system and I've I, I don't have much experience with that, but I, I do know people that have uh, adopted and I, I know even for the people that are adopting these children, it could be like an emotional roller coaster because sometimes the foster parents will really get attached to the kids and love on them. But then, like a relative would come out of nowhere and say, "Oh, you know, I could take them." And then it's like, "Are they fit to take them? Or are they not fit?" And then it's like this cat and mouse game. And I can only imagine how that is for a child, especially a young boy like yourself. Uh, and you said you had you had you were you were coping with anger uh, at, at that time. What what what's an example of that? Where did you get in a lot of fights or?
0: Yeah. So um, uh, I was extremely aggressive and, you know, I had a very quick temper. So in school, man, most of my suspensions came from fighting or came from being misunderstood or came from frustrating, frustrating um, topics in school. Meaning like when we had to start to draw diagrams of our family trees, uh, things like that was emotional. And because I didn't have, the the understanding of what family really was or where to start and I realized, you know, everybody could trace their family tree so far back and for me it was an emotional time. And so as a result of that, you know, that unexpressed emotion, you know, I would either, you know, clown or i either make fun of somebody else and agitate someone else to take the attention off of actually doing the work. And as a result, I would get suspended or in trouble or detention or whatever they they saw fit for me at the time.
1: Oh man, so that sounds. It sounds like that was life. Um, elementary school, going into middle school as well. So, what was it like be, living at a foster home? What was the What was the environment like? You said there was a lot of times there was no father, but how were the children and things like that, and the mother there?
0: The children would probably just, just terrorize them. I mean, you know, children at a young age, they have no filters and they don't really catch much about your feelings. And so, you know, talking about trying to adapt socially now, right? Trying to adapt to a, a, somebody else's home, somebody else's parents, somebody else's resources, somebody else's love and affection it can be very frustrating for for some random child that pops up at your house one day and your mom tells them that they are your brother. Um, you know, and so it was really frustrating because they will smile while, you know the parent was there but then behind closed doors you know they wouldn't want me to play their games they they wouldn't want if we were out together they wouldn't they didn't want to even acknowledge the fact that i lived in their house or even i was their brother or anything like that or they would just say oh that's just my foster brother he don't belong he ain't our real brother and so they would say things like that and you can imagine that a young you know as a young child what that does to you as you're trying to find your place in life, you're trying to find your place in family, and, and what it all looks like. You're trying to find your faith, uh, your place in relationship uh, between brother and brother or sister and brother, and trying to find out what that identity look like. And so, you know, we got to talk about the shattered identity that you have when it comes to being a brother or to being a son to a father or a son to a mother. You see, those things are the um, are the after effects of those who go through those type of traumatic experiences, but never never get the reconciliation. And so you most mm-hmm. times, and I, this is why my next internship when I'm about to start working at now is at a foster home. Cause I have to talk about the after you get out of the situation does the situation still get out of you, mm-hmm. and how do we heal past where we've come from? And so that is a that is an ongoing process. That sometimes, like even though I was removed from them situations, and I was glad to be in the number to be able to survive some of the things that you go through when you have to go through those systems, but I cannot ignore the traumatic experience that was left behind that still needs to be cleaned up.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I I see that that's really important. Um, with a lot of guests that I have on, a lot of, a lot of them are Christian. I don't know if everyone I've ever interviewed is a Christian. Um, but it seems like that's a a part of the healing process of, you know, a lot of times going to God for that, cleaning up the past type of thing, So I, in coping with it or not really coping with it, or just getting healed from it, um, getting a purpose behind it. And, and seeing clear, uh, so with that, it's going moving forward a little bit through high school. Just shifting to high school now, you still in the foster care system. Um, you so, so so now you've been adopted officially by the you know so that is your parents and that's how that works. Can you can you explain to us? How that works for the people that don't know?
0: So usually when um, a parent decides that they want to take full custody of you or they, they call it guardianship, or they can so they have the, they had the adoption. I don't know if it's still the same. But back then, you could either take guardianship, meaning you don't you don't have to adopt them, but you could take guardianship, meaning you're saying that I'm gonna take guardianship uh, over them until, you know, they be they're ready to go on their own. I'm adopt them means like, hey, I'm adopt them. They mine. I'm, I can change their name, all those things. Like I'm gonna adopt them. And so I remember sitting in the courtroom when the time had came, and they, had, they would sit me up on the little um, on the little stand right there, and they were talking. The judge was right there, right on my right hand side, and my my foster parent, she was standing right in front of me, and so she was like, so today is the day, you know, um, do you want your name changed? And I remember that was the first uh, the first question. And I remember I had this anxiety in my spirit. Like, I was like, and at eight years old, I'm like, I don't know about this. So I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at her, looking at the judge, like, and then the judge and he's like, you know, you don't have to. It's just, it's just one of the things that we want to give the, the children the right to decide. And so at this first time I realized that I had rights, I was like, this is the first time I get to choose for myself, like what I want. And so with confidence, after she said that, I said, no, don't change my name. Mm. And so then I then I figured and then she says, OK, we're going to go through and we're going to um, give you give, you know, your foster parent guardianship. And so at the time, I didn't know the difference. I thought I was adopted. There was guardianship, meaning that would be some type of guardianship protection covering until I get out on my own. But my records through it will say the same. They would just say, you know, guardian of like somebody who took care of. And that's what she was. Was she was she was a good guardian over me. She helped keep me and create some stability in my life throughout those you know eight years where I had just been on rocky courses. And so it was a really good time. Well, it's good knowing that it was the first time in my life I experienced stability, right?
1: So, what, how old were you when you were uh, when you had guardianship, or when when someone did the guardianship thing with you? How you were eight, and from eight till. The time you got out of the house, that's how long you were at that home yes and, but but it sounds like uh it was a single parent home
0: it started no it started off first, it was a two parent home so okay. it was a, it was dad and mom okay. and so and I get there um the environment uh, again, you know, we got to talk about environment. Yeah, go ahead, man. And so the environment, once so again, uh, it wasn't a bad, you know, it wasn't a bad environment, but it was an environment where like the same things were still true. I was a stranger coming to someone's home, and I had to get adapted to the, the children that were there. It was three other people, three other children there, so I called them my brother, two boys and one girl. So two of my brothers and my sister that were there. And um, two of them was older than me. One of them was younger than me, so I had to deal with the pressure of two older people and one one little terrorized. So, <laughs> um, so now I'm a leader. I'm older, and now I still gotta be a, a little brother because I'm younger. And so that, that dynamic was rough because I was a fighter and because I was angry and because that was just I'm like and trying to be accepted by the cousins who all stayed in the same building. So it's like a family building. And so trying to get accepted by them was also an issue. But then the dynamic between um, my mom and my dad, my foster mom and foster dad was also interesting. They had been with each other for 30 years. Um, and I saw, I saw my foster mom go to work every day, come back. And I saw my dad, um, my foster dad, he will come and he will go and some days he will stay longer. And he wouldn't go to work. But when I learned a couple of things from him, the little time that he was there, one of the things that I learned that was important was the power of cleaning up. Like the mm-hmm. power of environment. I mean, I don't care what you say. When we came home every day from school, that house was spicking clean, like right. top to bottom. And so when he was there, there was order. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he was there, I mean, he would be like, all right, go in there, do this, make sure this is done, clean up this and do this, this, this. And it felt good to come in one, to come into a space that had order. Uh, and then that I could honor the, the voice of another man. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, because I grew up so much with like women, 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 and that's cool, but it was like not hearing the voice of the other men could either be encouraging or intimidating, right? Depending mm-hmm. on the young man. And so for me, it was an encouraged thing. It was something I had needed for my soul because in my soul, I'm like, I'm a warrior. So I need to see other men. I need to be and I need to see that. And so to see him, you know he'd be in there doing push-ups and stuff like that because he he was a prior convict so it was just his nature was crazy and so but what I learned and the other part about is that I then I started to learn dysfunctional relationships because while this was a 30-year marriage you know he was strung out on um, you know cocaine and and, and my mom, you know, she didn't do drugs, but they had grew up together in the same pub, public housing. And she just figured that if she'd take them along the ride, that this thing would just turn out to be good. And and so she did this for 30 years plus and, and suffering in suffering and silence and just being tortured on the inside, knowing that that was more. And I watched her do that over and over and over again, until they had to divorce. So after 30 years of them being together, I had to watch them divorce. So I watched dysfunctional relationships. Uh, Then I watched a divorce take place. And then I watched a remarriage take place with another guy that comes in the home who's, who's younger than the guy, younger than the man that was there before. So then you see the total opposite dynamics of being. You see a man who says, strong out or not, here are the responsibilities that I both hold in the house, and then you hear, uh, you get a, a younger guy, maybe, maybe fifteen years younger than the, the previous guy, and you see a whole another dynamic sh- a shift. And like the house is dirty, no responsibilities, and I was frustrated with this. And so a little bit older when I got older, um, because they didn't divorce until I was like a teenager,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then it caused friction in the house. Then, gotcha. and this is when. Um, I um, I was getting into fights with him. I was arguing with him because he was trying to tell me to do something, and and I'm like, you don't do nothing. And so we had this dynamic going on. I'm like, he's younger. I'm like, he's close to my oldest brother's age. So it's just hard to respect that. Um, and and I was like, he ain't he ain't strung out on cocaine, but he's strung out on, on 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 marijuana. And so I had these these comparisons and these frustrations. And so I'm like, and I had told myself, I said, I vowed not to do drugs i vowed not to do none of these things is because my dad was a victim of it i said my foster parents uh my da- the-, the guy who was my foster parent was a victim of it and then my mom's first name is a victim of it um participant victim of it yeah, um, they yeah. were a victim of it right and so i said to myself what am i going to choose what kind of man what i'm going to choose to be and i said i can't do that route whatever that is i won't go that route and so that frustration constantly happened when especially as a young man, you may not say it out your mouth, but in your heart, you know you're looking for another man, you know you're looking for another man, and that's undeniable right. and any man
1: to say anything different
0: they ain't like they lie
1: oh yeah man I, I agree wholeheartedly uh that that must be a, t- a tough tough transition man it's It's like a, a like a third father figure in your life and i and I'm curious. How was your relationship with your biological father at this point? Was, was it like completely non-existent or was it once in a while he'll pop up? It was,
0: it was once in a while, then it became like silence. I didn't hear from him, or we'll see him. And then ironically enough, man, this is really when it happened. Um, when I was, I was out on the street gangbanging and um, found out my brother, um, went to the same school um, across the street from the same neighborhood I was banging on. And I had an encounter one day uh, with his school, some guys from his school didn't even know he went to that school and got into a big brawl fight or was attending to get into a big brawl fight. The dean at the school uh, called us into the building. And so as we were in the building, you know, kind of like this, this kind of real moment, they were standing on one side of the room and we were standing on another side of the room and the dean, was in the middle of the room kind of giving this an inspirational speech about men sticking together. And I didn't know that later on, I'd be (laughs) chanting those same words. You see how funny that is, right? (laughs) And so he was just talking about how we need to stand together as men and brothers and we don't need to be fighting each other. And so, you know, as as my enemies are looking at us on this other side and we mugging each other and we looking for the right moment to just kind of just engage um, because we were looking for a particular guy to come through the door had started all of this mess and so by the time the door swung open there was about three guys that walked in and uh, one of those guys happened to be my brother
1: and I'm oh, telling wow. you man
0: like this shifted the whole room because when he came in I ain't seen him in a while uh, over some years and so when he came in I broke down crying and so everybody you know you can imagine my homies they like yo he tripping what's going on with him like and so I broke down crying and I saw him he saw me and we hugging in the middle of the in the middle of the room and at that moment you know the dean had took full advantage of this moment and, and made his point strong and I mean it shifted the room and by the end of that meeting um we were in uh Arm, uh, I'm uh, holding on, locking on, singing <laughs> and, 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 we had been, <laughs> and we had built a relationship. And at that moment, what I realized is that he had built, he had built a bridge between the guys that was in the streets and the guys that was in the schools. And so he says there would be no, no more division between you all and 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 as a result of that he says you know what you all also have access to the resources that our school have so when we have dances when we have parties when we open up our gym to you all you all are invited people you all will no longer be just some guys roaming the neighborhood and don't have a family right here in the neighborhood that you all are in and that in and of itself um that in and of itself was powerful um and so that sounds it, tough it,
1: sounds like something out of a movie <laughs> I said, I need to get that published. <laughs> that is, I need to get- that, that's amazing. Um, so you, you connected with your estranged brother and that, that, that's, that's awesome. So you mentioned that you were gangbanging in the street. How, how old were you when you started gangbanging? Um, Prematurely, I um,
0: yeah, started started it started off subtle i mean that's usually how it is i don't know how subtle it is now but for me it was subtle it was just spending a lot of days out right and um i was around maybe 12 13. around 12 and 13 i was just hanging out um and then the guys that were on the block they were always around they were shooting dice by the parks that we were at right you know they had you know they had the everything that we thought that we wanted And so they will periodically come over there and I would say like subtly recruit people, you know, they will watch all the young brothers that were in the neighborhood. They watch their talents, their gifts. And then obviously someone will make the approach. And that's what happened. Like I I just subtly, man, I was just out on the streets all the time, spending time with me and my boys. We were doing crazy stuff. And um, out of nowhere, you know, it was just like more. And then my, my bigger brother, who was there at the time. He also was influenced, and then even the, even my brother that was in my, my foster home, he was in it. My uncles, you know, all of them were affiliated. So it, it, for me, it was So I'm like, they got that brotherhood. That's always men around. I will sit with them when they used to come over at the house, and and I used to be around them when they're talking drugs talk, when they're talking money talk, when they're talking women talk. So I've got some of my, and it, watch this, I got some of my most critical conversation pieces from 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 men who were talking about things that were in the street and, and and those were the ones who talked to me and talked back to me. Those were the one who listened to me. And so my uncle and my brother who were affiliated in the streets, I mean, because you what you learn about, you know, being in that type of lifestyle at least then is that you had to be a people person. I mean <laughs> and so talking and transacting with people were, were like key instrumental to your success and so these guys were successful so um i wanted i wanted a part of that i wanted yeah. to be a part of that that group i wanted to be a part of those guys i wanted that money i wanted that success i wanted the reputation i wanted to be known for something so as a result i decided and, to be affiliated and join
1: and that's what you thought a real man was
0: that's what i thought a real man was and i took on all the characteristics at a very young age
1: you know, that's that's really interesting. And and like you mentioned earlier, that's what I believe young men want. They they want a man they can connect with to show them, to guide them. Um, and when the father's not around, someone else might take on that role maybe directly or indirectly um, and shape that, that child's life. So <clears throat> that moment with your brother was a dramatic shift in your life. How, so did that change your position on like education did you go to college after that I think you might have mentioned you went to college or did you not go to college or you started businesses or what did you do um post the streets you said you said poster streets post streets
0: post street life <laughs> yeah, post
1: street life post high school yeah <laughs> yeah
0: yeah man like it, it was about a, it was, it was a lot of those guys that were in the street were very intelligent and smart man who told me who didn't give me an option and said man you smart you different than these other guys you need to go off and you need to focus on your education so a lot of times they 'Cause I was committed to the thing. And when I did something, I said I did it. I put my everything into it. And so they were just saying, like, man, I you you go hard, you do what you do, but this ain't for you, man. And I thought I took it as, I took it as another form of neglect, man. I took it as another form of rejection. I'm like, what do you mean this ain't for me, man? I didn't did this, I'm about this, I'm you know, and I I started throwing my weight around and they yeah, yeah. it's like, look, little man, this ain't this ain't what we talking about. It's some of us who gonna die in this. And he said, That ain't true. And he says, you go to school, man, take the opportunities that we ain't got, man, and do what you gotta do. And, and with that with that speech and that talk, and when I watched a couple of my guys get killed right in front of me, beside me, at the same place at the same time, and I end up keep get, kept getting away from this stuff, and I, and I took their words and I heeded to it, and I took my way out, and I just started going to school, man, and I started like leaning into my education, especially in my high school years, man. I really leaned into my education, I got the. I got to, um, I started like applying myself because I didn't know before I left high school, or before I left elementary school, I went to go get my records from the uh, juvenile detention center. And when I unfolded, man, it was so thick. So when I started to look at the history that was connected to my name and to my father and, and to my other brothers and sisters and siblings and some of the information I saw in there was, it was enough to make you boo for weeks, man. And so yeah. one of the things that I saw, I said, I did not know that they had labeled me L.D., So now, can you explain to us what LD is? Learning. They 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 had they said I had a learning disability, and and I was like I didn't know that. And then, but I know I'm lying. I I found this out after I graduated high school because after high school I went to go get my records because I said when I go to college I want to close the chapter of my life. I want to be finished with all this, I was creating a new path for myself. And and I was like, I didn't know that they labeled me this in, in elementary school, and I didn't know I was labeled that in high school. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm like, I'm walking around and all the teachers know I have a learning disability. But what they fail to realize, because they ain't see the whole picture, is that I didn't have a learning disability. I had a love disability. I had a leadership <laughs> disability. Like that's what I had. People who didn't love me, people who who came up short in leading my life and nourishing me, which translated on how I'm gonna learn in the classroom when I'm still struggling about people love me. Like yeah, that yeah. thing, like that, that was a real thing. And so when I got, you know, when I got out of high school. School, man I had made a vow to myself that when this when I'm done with this man like this chapter of my life I said I have to forgive my parents I have to forgive myself and I, I want to create a new half of myself a new name for myself um, I graduated top of my class I graduated class president I was in many organizations right. and, I, and and I graduated with honors and got scholarships and and that wasn't in my future <laughs> You know, according to my records, see, right, like right. my mind said from this to the prison. And thank God I skipped, I skipped, the, thank God I skipped the prison. You hear me?
1: Like, <laughs> it's a good testimony, bro. <laughs> I tell
0: you, thank well, God I skipped the prison.
1: Well, you said, so this is awesome. Uh, you said you had to forgive your parents. Did you, did you ever see your father after you came to this new light and a new way of thinking, a new way of life. Uh, did you ever contact your father in, in that? Yeah. Funny thing, how, man. How did that go? To, uh,
0: life has a way of uh, crossing paths, man, and intersecting. So so he got sick mm. and he ended up, um, end up coming to Atlanta, Georgia. And this was before I got here. And I'm in college and in school, you know, getting my degree at Alabama AM University. And um I, I now, you know, I told you when I met my brother, me and my brother stayed in contact. Yeah. And so yeah. we've been staying in contact and he'll keep me updated with sometimes he's he's the one that kinda keeps everybody together. He's like, Mom, there, he gives me the update on everybody. Cause he has a more closer knit. So me and you know, I'll talk a little bit more later about like what the attachment is and that failed to kind of keep and communicate with everybody. So he kind of keeps me up aboard on that. And so he, um, so me and him keep in contact. He tells me that dad is in Atlanta with uh, my auntie, who I live with now in Atlanta. My auntie, who I had never um, ever experienced or seen or anything. And so he's in Atlanta, Georgia. He's staying here. Post college, after I graduated college, I mean, like my senior year, I did not have plans on coming to Atlanta, Georgia. I was thinking about going back to Chicago to Tennessee or Birmingham for a job opportunity. It wasn't until I had a conversation with my brother and he was trying to give me, he said, look, man, you can come down here to Georgia. I'm here, auntie is here. Um, And I was like, okay, cool. I think about it, that's gonna be my last option. My last option come graduation time in December. Um, A lot of my jobs that wasn't falling through, they were still pending and I'm like, man, I need to get up out of Huntsville immediately right there's pressure to kind of just go and go because my lease was up on my apartment and then my brother called me and I was like man just ask he said come stay with me and my um uh, my girlfriend and that was his wife and I said no I don't feel comfortable doing that and he was like well ask ask auntie I'm like I don't know auntie Only not know me like that I called my auntie I said auntie I know this is probably strange I said do you mind if I stay there if I got a job in Atlanta do you mind if I stay there for a little while And she was excited. She was like, yeah, nephew. She's like, you're the only one of my nephews. I ain't been able to raise and to see you. And I was like, "I (laughs) bet. When I get there, my dad is staying there. Oh, wow. So my dad is staying there. I never lived with my dad before. Never, you know, never spent more than a day with him. So it was interesting enough. And this is where the breakthrough came in. The first maybe three months we were there. I was, um, you know, trying to have conversations with him about him. He was just so like, just nonchalant. Like, man, you still in school, man? What you doing, man? When you gonna get a career? You know the talk. Yeah. <laughs> when you gonna get a career, man? You gonna do something, man? You always going to school every time I turn around. Did you graduate yet? I'm like, yeah, then I graduated. Yeah. <laughs> I said you was at the graduation. He, oh yeah, hey, I forgot, I forgot. Yeah. And then something hit me. I was, we was talking one night. And I had, I said, yeah, daddy. I'm like, why you never say sleep? He like, why am I say I love you, folks? You already know I love you. I said, Dad, something from when you say it out your mouth. And he was like, I ain't got time for all that, man. You can go on somewhere else with that. So, real dismissive. So, I took it personal. So, every time I try, he'll shoot it down. He'll shoot it down. I took it personal, man. I was like, man. And I said to myself, I, I ain't going to say nothing else to this guy, man. I'm going to come and go, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Now, I realized that my father didn't give, you know, he didn't care either way. He had already been fixed and stuck in his mind. And so I pray and I ask God about. I said, God, how should I how should I treat this situation? I want to be in the same house with my father and not and not have an opportunity to experience what he's like. See, you better be careful who you pray for, because God will God will call you to a higher account when you mm-hmm. pray certain things. And mm-hmm. I prayed this friend. Here's what the Lord said to me. I thought the Lord was gonna tell me, you know what? He, I'm, I'm about to change your father's heart. I'm about to do this. That's what he says. He says for the next 30 days, you go in the room and you tell them you love them and you give them a hug every day. And don't worry about what this response is gonna be. Now I was like, what? My pride kicked in and I was like, nah man, cause I was already upset and mad. And so I did it though. For the next 30 days, I went in that room. I was unattached to, I was unattached to the outcome. I showed up in the room powerfully. I said, hey Pop, I just wanna let you know, I love you. And I said, you know, and I need a kiss. And he like, man, what you gay, man? What you don't want some kissing, man, right? And so I started to see it to be hilarious. So I started getting the kick out of it. So I said, look at him, like, love. like that's like, it's cool. So I hug him and give him a kiss. He'll fight me and then i walk off. And so every day I did this, right? Something happened, man. Like, something was restored. Something was restored. Like, the joy, like, this pressure that he had to do and perform and be. And I was like, it was, it was, was what it was robbing me of is my experience with him, just the way he is. And then allowing allowing the love that I give to him back, right, just permeate his heart and let him respond however he needs to respond. And so I did this for 30 days straight. And I didn't have to stop doing it because at that point it became a habit. And what I found out is our conversation got deeper. Right. Um, Transparency got better and we started having conversations about things that I had yarn to have conversations about. You, know, you find yourself giving me advice about some things. He'll you know, even say, you know, I love you. You know what I'm saying? Have a good day. You know, so those things started to happen gradually and slowly and it was the best feeling of my life i was like yo and we'll go i'll be like because at first i'm like no nah, i don't want pops to go nowhere with me i take him to church he embarrassed me i was like i ain't taking him to church it doesn't the lord had to get over you like take him to church with you so people can see your father yeah. and i took him to church with me he oh my god he was like a fool but <laughs> i i had to <laughs> but it taught me like how to love him in all his ways and i had a different appreciation for him, man.
1: That's awesome. That's a wonderful story, man. Uh, about that, how your father was estranged from your life for such a long time, and then at the at the right moment, you guys came back into uh, a relationship. And you know, if you guys are listening, if you can see the smile on Aaron's face, man, is just from ear to ear he's, when he's talking <laughs> about his dad, man. Uh, and that's and that's amazing. Um, I think that's really vital and essential to uh, life, uh, your father uh, yeah. so 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 moving now to the future, your relationship with your dad is you know restored, good relationship with him. How did Rise five come about, or when did that come about? And can you well, tell us about uh, some uh, tell us about this upcoming event you have as well? Absolutely. Um, rise five,
0: and has come up. Oh, that was the first part of your question, right?
1: Right, right, right.
0: Okay. So, so rise five came up. Um, I went on a trip with a couple of friends. Um, it was about twenty-something of us, and we decided that in this COVID nature that we were all kind of still, we were all believers. So we said, "That's that's all link up. That's not forsake the fellowship of the brethren." Um, and let's let's kind of take a trip and get away from all the hoo-rock. And so we embarked on this journey to, to run out of Airbnb, nice mansion, and we were all there. And We had put together an itinerary of just to have fun and worship and, and giving God all the glory. And so um, one of the days we were at the, the lake, it was a lake with a kind of like a, a beach or, I mean, like a little um, thing on it where we can stand on. And so was, we was all out there. And at this time, it was all the fellas, And there was about six of us out there. And we were talking about the things in the world and what was going on. And we were talking about our positions as men. Like, where, where does, what where do men stand in this? We're like, what do we have a hand in this? at? And so I said, hey, listen, y'all. I said, how about for the next 30 days? Um, it was June at the time. I said, how about for the next 30 days, y'all, we commit ourselves to meeting and gathering and bringing our power together, bringing our ideas together, our resources, and let's see what we can come up with. And so the first meeting we get up, we get there, we were all excited, dapping up, laughing, making jokes, being free in our conversation without correction, you know, you know how it is when we get together. Mm-hmm. And, and then after all of that energy settled into the space, you know, we looked around and I kind of gave a, um, just a pitch of understanding to the, to the space. And I was just saying, look, brothers, you know, today has brought us together because we want to do something amazing but we just want to find out wh- who we all are. Cause I'm like, we dap up, we see each other, but we don't even know who each other are. And, I, and I'm like, I want to first give us an opportunity to reintroduce ourselves to one another. Mm-hmm. So we spent that first meeting reintroducing ourselves, getting acclimated with each other and then building relationship. The second meeting is where the creative space took place. And I said we, I said, I want us to get on a project together. Cause I believe that when we are able to work together, I said, so we need a reason to work together. So so like, let's come up with an idea. Let's come up with something meaningful that will give us a reason to work together with each other and see our true strengths and true weakness and give us an opportunity to lean on each other in this time and be, you know, and be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So we started coming around. I told him I had a vision about that God had a vision. I told him I had a vision that God gave me about 5,000 men. I said, God gave me 5,000. And it came from a story uh, when Jesus was feeding the 5,000. Mm-hmm. And and God has showed me that I want to raise five thousand men. I wanna I wanna raise five thousand. And so I went back to the meeting. The next time I said, yo, I don't know how we gonna do this, but let's do something that 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 calls for five thousand black men. Well, first I said five hundred because I was scared to say five thousand. <laughs> and so the spirit of the Lord was like, nah, stop checking it out, man. And I said, Well, and I told him, I'm like, Well, it was really five thousand, but I think like five hundred. And I'm like, nah, you know what? 5,000 it is. And so we started generating names and we started talking and we was like, what do we want for men? And we all we kept saying was like, we want men to be uplifted. We wanted men to just rise. And so one of my boys was like, yeah, man. And he had this thing called 5,000. He was like, 5,000 plus. And I'm like, I'm like, ah, you know how you look for that ring? And we were like, we get it, but it might be too ambiguous. Right. And so it was like, well, I'm like, we, we want me to rise, man. He was like, how about Rise 5? I said, yeah. I said, it made a little ring to it. I said, Rise 5, it is. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, um, and then, you know, the Rise 5, I said, 5,000 is just the goal. That's just the start. I said, we understand that 5,000 will multiply and increase, but we have to set a goal that we want 5,000 Black men to rise all over the place, all over the world, whether it be Atlanta, Georgia, Chicago, whatever. But I, I'm on an aggressive mission now to, to spark, the, to, spark the, to ignite the, the, the passion, the purpose, the, 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 the man inside of you that has been sleeping for way too long. Mm. you know you call i, I can't tell how many men i meet man and i said it in my what's name to live under their god-given potential notice i said god-given potential mm-hmm. so many men who try to suffocate the things god has given them or pervert the things that god has given them for their own benefit for their own livelihood and, and it always in it always puts you back at ground zero yeah and so my 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 thing is to ignite a spiritual awakening in man's heart um uh, i don't even want to say spiritual because that's so ambiguous these days because you like all spirit i want a god-given awakening Mm -hmm. the lord our god jesus the christ that's what i'm talking about you got to be specific (laughs) these days there's too many gods out here so i gotta i I told myself i I told god i'm living for you i'm being bold for you on every platform i stand on so i'm talking about that god the god of the universe and I want to awaken that, and let the, and let the men know that God is calling you back home Oh,
1: th- thanks for sharing. Um, just to wind down, uh, I gotta ask this question. It's probably my closer question. Mm. Uh, you gotta sh- you gotta share with me. I've been doing some research about um, fatherless. Uh, excuse me, fathers. And there seems to be some sort of link between fatherlessness and atheism. Um, And you, you know, God-fearing, you know, talking about, you know, spiritual things, but you also come from a place where you didn't have a father. How how did your relationship uh, with God if you always had one or if you didn't have one or if you develop one later, did you do you personally see that there were, there is a link between like fatherlessness and not believing in God or or having a father as God and, and something like that? So basically, my question is, uh, when you were in the foster care system and you didn't have a male role model in your life, did you view God in a certain way or were you angry at God or? Did you always have that sort of faith there in the background? Um,
0: I think at the time I I didn't, I didn't know what a God was. Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't preached in my environments. That wasn't talked about until I got to my main foster home, um, my final one. But up until that, eight years old, I I didn't have a reference. You know, some people could say I'm mad at God. Even when you say you're mad at God, you can you know Him. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even say I'm mad at God. Cause I ain't know him. I ain't yeah, know, him, yeah. you know, that, that ain't who I, I'm looking at the people around me and say, I made it you, <laughs> you, and you. <laughs> so I didn't have a recollection of this God thing, but I knew there was a spirit inside of me. I, I knew that. I, didn't, I knew it was a spirit inside of me that would not let me give up. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't always attribute it to myself. But I mean, all I had was myself to look around at, right? <laughs> so right, right. so I was like, I, I'm I'm strong and I'm gonna keep on. And it was the spirit inside of me that got it imparted part inside of me that allowed me to endure a lot of those things. Now, when I got to my, my foster home, uh, like I was telling you about mom working that job and then, you know, the dad staying at home and doing this. The other part of that story is that she'll go to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And every Sunday that she'll go to church, it, uh, the other the other the other three siblings will, will play sleep, play possum. Um uh and, and she'll ask, like y'all need to get up. So she was like, I ain't gonna be late for church. Who's ready? And here I am like this. Cause I ain't know what no church was. I'm just like I wanted to get out the house anyway. <laughs> I want I find a reason to get out the house. Like and so I was like I'm like I'm ready. And it reminds me of like who's ready? Like the, how God is with us. Like God makes the appeal to all of us. The yeah, invitation was for all of us in the house, but I was the only one that answered. Yeah. And I showed up, man, I would never remember. I showed up and I was sitting in church and I watched people, I'm a watch, I'm an observer, I take things in, I'm watching people and I'm just sitting in the church, people shouting, dancing. And I'm a dancer, so i like, good meal. I was like, I don't know what I'm dancing I <laughs> said. So I was like, this is a good time, this is a good time. And so it wasn't until she started taking me, she noticed that I I, I wouldn't mind going because she didn't have nobody to go with. So it was like, it was almost like it was a relationship being built. She's like, I ain't got nobody to go with. He's willing to go, I'll take him. So on our rides, she guess what she'll be talking to me and I'll just be like this. Cause I didn't know how to respond to nothing she was saying. So I'll just be like, <laughs> and she, I would, and what I didn't know, here's the thing, here's the kicker, bro, what I didn't know, man, is like, is, like those were seeds
1: mm-hmm. that
0: she was depositing inside of me. Didn't know Keith that those were seeds that she was putting down on the inside of me. All I know is one day I was sitting at a, a choir rehearsal and they were singing a song and i and she had told me because I had been coming for a while and I had been sitting in the audience. But she said the uh, the music minister of music Harvey was like, "Come tell him to come on up here. He always dancing. Tell him to come on up here. He can be in." So they knew I'm like I'm like I want to be a tenor because I like them bass. I'm like I want to be a tenor. Right, yeah, yeah, so I yeah. sat in the tennis section. And it was like just you know when we start singing, don't say <laughs> nothing. I'm like, alright. And I remember, man, we were just sitting there. The choir rehearsal would be so anointed, man. Like it wouldn't just be like rehearsing; it'll be like actual the worship of the song. The spirit of God would be in there. And I, I remember like stuff coming over me. And I used to ask my mom, I'm like, I feel something. And she remember she telling me, she's like, whatever you feel, boy, don't quench the spirit. Now I ain't know what quench was. I'm like. Like, don't be, what do you, what do you mean, Quint? She said, don't hold back. If something comes over you, just let it go. I was like, whatever you say. So at that time, I was like, whatever. And I remember the song like it was never before. We was at choir hearse for this day, and we were singing at Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh my provider and that thing was looping and looping and some way somehow that thing had got in my spirit man and that day I like I felt the presence of God come over me and it was the first time I ever cried in in worship or in my little dance experience um, and I didn't you know at that time I was praising God I didn't have the language for it but I, the first time I let some tears drop um and then the past even in that church which was good for me I used to, he was an old school pastor. He was about 85 when I was that young. So you imagine how long that, he used to cry, right? He used to weep sometimes through a sermon. And when, when something overwhelmed him, and I used to be sitting in the audience like, it, it must really hurt, like, like the kid you like, it must hurt whatever he's going through. Yeah, and yeah. I remember those morning devotions when you get there early in the deacons uh, up front. Opening up, sir. They they up front exhorting and praying on their knees and and they welling out to the Lord. And so I was like, wow, this is what men do. And so for the first time, my worship and the spirit of God that was in me was not like one where it's like it was stiff or still. It was expressive. So as a man, like you know, when I was out in the world, I'm like, Don't, you can't be seen crying. But I was like, I had made my connection. I said, well, I guess church is the only place I can cry.
1: Mm
0: hmm. (laughs) And I I started crying in church. I started I started releasing in church. So and so when I tell people about like I didn't grow up in a church, I didn't grow up churched uh, out. I didn't grow up in all those things. I grew up. uh, So once I grew up, once my introduction was made and guys in the street were even talking about God, I just didn't know what they were talking about. But once my introduction was made uh, for myself, every time I came to the house of God, every time I prayed, it was personal. So I never got caught up in a lot of church stuff because it was personal when I showed up to the house of God. It was personal when I was listening to the word. And I'm like, this this is personal because my life depends on it. And so I still to this day, it's the same thing. I don't care where I'm at, what I'm doing. It's personal because I'm like, you don't know what God did for me. You can't imagine, and so when I'm talking about like getting to the father, I feel like the woman with the issue of blood. I feel like I feel like the man that was sitting down at the the pool for 38 years, and finally his hip came. I feel like the friends who who opened up the, well, the roof and, and let my man's down to get his hip. I'm like, whatever I gotta do is personal, like period. <laughs>
1: that's, that's like,
0: you know no, I mean? that's so awesome, <personally>. <laughs>
1: You heard it here, uh, folks. It's a personal thing. Um, if you've listened to this podcast enough, you'll you'll see a pattern here. But I'm not going to say it right now. I just want you to keep listening. Maybe you'll catch the pattern. But um, you know, Aaron, thanks for for joining. Um, I th- I thought I had another question for you um, about your uh, father and and things like that. Oh. <clears throat> This is really the last one okay, uh, no when you when you used to have those deep conversations with him, did he ever explain to you like his life of the drugs, how he got hooked on it? Did he ever talk about his relationship with his father? Yeah,
0: and I think that's what gave me the grace to forgive him and to love him differently. when he expressed to me his relationship to his father and um, and during that time period, you know those drugs were. Like what we would consider to be cigarettes and weed at this time. That, that's how familiar those those drugs were to that generation. And he talked about his relationship, how he, he had this hate towards his father, um, and how he felt towards how he treated his mother and how he did her wrong, and how he was unaffectionate and, unlo- and Like, like, and cause I asked him, and he was like, he was like, no, it, it, he, you know, he was like, that guy ain't never. He he wasn't never around. And and it made sense. And then for the first time I had the conversation with him, it made sense. now. I had stopped beating him up in my mind for not being around. I was like, dang, he, he don't even know how to do this. And he don't even know what that feels like. I said everything that he he's doing now is out of survival. Like he's still in survival mode. He's still trying to cope with the loss of his father even when he was alive. You know, the loss of his father and in the absence of his father, uh, even when he was or never coming around, being alive and never coming around, because I asked him this question, uh, Keith, I said, did you go to did you go to granddads funeral? He said, what why would I go to his funeral? So you see how deep like that 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 feeling he had towards him. and right. even as a sixty seven year old man, he had been carrying it around sixty eight year old man he'd been carrying this. This around with them for years on top of years, and has been shaping his experience with his sons and with his daughters. And and I, I had declared and decreed of my life that that thing stopped with me, and it will not. It will not permeate into my children. I will get this completed and finished and done, and I will settle this. This is settled, and and my children will have a father who they have access to mentally, emotionally, and spiritually um so that 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 put me in deep prayer man and so when i figured that out about my dad it it made me pray for
1: him differently as well oh man i'm remarkable man aaron thank you uh if you have anything you want to share with the people uh, this might be a special broadcast I might put this one up really quick <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, do you have anything you want to share anything you want to plug any of your information yeah, man,
0: I want to, Anybody's out there, follow uh, follow our page at RISE52020, and that's R-I-Z-E 5, like the number, 2020. Um, and if you have any comments or if you want to know any, anything more, you can go to our website at RISE5.com, RISE5.com, and our email address is RISE52020 at uh, gmail.com, anything like that. And the first thing that we want to get kicking off for RISE5 is our mentorship for men. Uh, young men and uh, if anybody want to support and donate you can email one of those channels or you can contact me um, at the uh, email address just given Um, so we want to restore we want to heal and we want to revive our men um, in this season because we need strong men and also we got the black man march coming up uh, august 15th this saturday uh, in atlanta georgia at anderson park And so it's gonna be fun. I've been excited about that, man, excited and nervous. And I've just been spending time with the Father. And it's not just a black man march, it's a stand for God. And I believe that where you stand in this world, especially now, it's gonna be totally important to what happens to you. And so um, it's just not about social justices. It's just not about that. Um, we don't understand that everything that happens down here is connected to God. And so we've been standing for everything. We've been standing for politics. We've been standing for black lives matter. We've been standing for this, but the Lord just put it on my heart. Where are my people who are standing for me? Mm -hmm. And so I said, God, I ain't going to leave you out. Black man march standing for God. Um, and so, um, that's what it's about. And so I got it because God wants to see who's going to be bold and unapologetic for him in this season. Uh, no more hiding under rocks. No more, you know, be ducking and dodging, hiding behind church walls. Ain't no church walls. Hiding behind the church walls. I'm the church. I'm going to bring the church to the wild. So um, I'm excited, man. And I thank you for having me, Keith, man. Thank you for inviting me. Shout out to Tasha for connecting us, man. Yeah, for sure. For um, sure. This, is, this has been an
1: amazing thing, man. Awesome. Well, you heard it here. Aaron Walker, ladies and gentlemen, you guys have a good night. Peace. Peace.